Welcome to the Shadow of the Valley, the show that explores how technology disrupts society. I'm your host, Tal Leeds. Join me as we navigate our rapidly shifting technological landscape. Together, we'll explore key concepts and seek clear insights about the ways technology changes the world for better or worse. Join us as we cut through the distractions to find solutions to some of our toughest challenges. This episode's guest is John Lipkowski. John's long resume includes projects with the likes of South by Southwest Interactive, EFF Austin, Wired Magazine, and many more. He is known as an activist and a writer focused on strategic foresight, internet evolution, digital culture, cyber liberties, media, and society. There are people who have become very skillful at finding memes and learning how to circulate them that really hit people at a very emotional level and not at an intellectual level at all. Together, we'll look at how the internet culture evolved from its humble countercultural roots into a theater of international politics. We'll also investigate the viral nature of digital media and how online propaganda affects our emotions, perceptions, and politics. Let's begin. Welcome to Season 2 of Shadow of the Valley. Since I started this modest little podcast earlier in the year, a lot has changed. When I initially sat down with my guests, no one had any idea what was about to be uncovered. Cambridge Analytica, Facebook, the Russian troll farms meddling in our elections. There were still just rumors and whispers back then. Some have said we're in a post-truth era. We're seeing how populations across the world, from the United States to India, from the UK to Brazil, are all falling for the bait of fake news and convenient, pleasurable, reassuring narratives that confirm their worst biases and fears. The dangers are certainly real. The socio-political consequences are unfolding before our eyes. But does this spell doom for objective reality? I'm not convinced. I still think there's hope. But it's going to demand that we change what I call our informational hygiene habits. Cybersecurity experts use the term to talk about best practices for people clicking around the internet and downloading data. I'm thinking of it in a slightly different way. There's this paper recently put out by the Institute for the Future called The Biology of Disinformation. In it, the authors compare viral propaganda within our digital ecosystem to actual viruses in the real world. What they find is that the metaphor holds up pretty well. One major takeaway is that the biases of digital media make us more prone to fake news and disinformation. Our normal social filters, those inoculations to bad thinking, mental traps, or bad behavior, simply don't hold up online. The memes we share help spread some of our worst inclinations far and wide. Our raw, amoral instincts find social groups that will reward the automatic, brutish, unthinking parts of our brains with likes and retweets. When you take in corrupted information, rumors, lies, tabloids, fake news, your rational mind might know the difference, but your emotional mind probably won't. And when your emotions are not based in facts, things can get messy pretty quickly. And that's exactly the aim of these propagandists. 
They want you getting overly emotional, escalating the rhetoric, and forgetting to treat your neighbors, friends, and loved ones with respect. So keeping your cool online is part of this good hygiene I'm talking about. Knowing how to spot the BS, how to navigate your emotions, how to tell when you're being baited into an emotional response are all part of the digital literacy we ultimately need. It's tempting to get into flame wars or trolling. It can feel really good to share things that boldly state our worldview with people who confirm it back to us. In fact, the platforms are designed for that. It's pretty clear now that this feature is actually a design flaw. This technology that was supposed to augment our ability to connect is too often hijacked to do the opposite. But luckily, it's not a replacement for our analog tools, the face-to-face -face social skills we have. When the heightened augmented cells we present in the theater of the web fail us, we have to go back to what works, to what's tried and true. Good old face-to-face, neighbor-to-neighbor, friend-to-friend, loved one-to-loved one conversation. It's that kind of good old-fashioned conversation that I had with our guest, John Lipkowski, right at his kitchen table, in fact. This episode's guest is John Lipkowski. John's long resume includes projects with the likes of South by Southwest Interactive, EFF Austin, Wired Magazine, and many more. He is known as an activist and writer focused on strategic foresight, internet evolution, digital culture, cyber liberties, media, and society. Welcome, John. Thanks for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Uh, so let's give um, the listeners a little bit of a brief introduction to you, uh, who you are, what you've done in the past, what your work is, and just kind of set up the conversation we're going to have here today. I was um, actually working for a state agency, and um, I was uh, trained as a writer. Um, and had done writing over the years um, that was largely unpublished. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a few things published, but not much. And um, I was very interested in Coevolution Quarterly, which was published by the people who published the Whole Earth Catalog. Okay. Who just had their 50th anniversary. We went out for that. And, and this was happening around what time? <clears throat> Well, you know, the Whole Earth Catalog goes back to the late '60s, right. and I was um, I was an avid reader of the Whole Earth Catalog, which was sort of a very eclectic, uh, forward-looking and outward-looking publication. Right. Um, and um, I had really wanted to connect with them and and write for them, mm -hmm. and um, I was here in Texas, and yeah. they were in, you know, Marin County in California, uh, in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I had thought about going out there, but um, I discovered at one 
point that they had uh, they they had developed a kind of interest in technology and started publishing something called the Whole Earth Software Review. Oh, okay. And um, they uh, this kind of led them to uh, bulletin board systems, and they thought, well, that was ideal for them to set up a BBS. So they set up a BBS. It's called Whole Earth electronic with the E missing link or the well. Mm -hmm. And um, the well uh, was initially populated by a combination of deadheads and Bay Area people, journalists. Uh, a number of people found their way into that uh, sort of uh, community. Okay. And so the well has its roots in the Whole Earth Catalog. Exactly. And the Whole Earth Catalog is this... Uh, progressive thinking um, publication out of out of the 60s and, and 70s um, that was was very much pushing these ideal utopian type ideas right um, well sometimes very practical sometimes okay. a little bit utopian um, and but part of the counterculture yeah exactly yeah. Okay. exactly and I um, <clears throat> I wanted to log into that BBS so mm -hmm. that I could talk to them. Right, yeah. That's how I initially connected with Bruce Sterling and also with Mike Godwin. Right. And uh, uh, Godwin of Godwin's Law? Is that the same? Exactly. That's okay. Mike Godwin. So, so he was and the Bruce Sterling, the, the uh, cyberpunk author. Yeah, science Who you actually, writer. you still do a, like a yearly um, thing on the well with him, right? Yeah. I mean, over the years we became good friends and, and uh, I've interviewed him several times and and we had this annual state of the world conversation every january on the well mm -hmm. so he was a member of the well too and so it was godwin and so was steve jackson and at the time that i joined the well the the forces were coming together to form the electronic frontier foundation which was right. founded by three guys who also had well accounts john perry barlow john gilmore and mitch kapoor Mm -hmm. And Barlow um, had uh, connected with some um, some hackers that were like you know young guys that were hackers that um, were sort of like full of testosterone and showing off and you know yeah. showing what they could do with their skills <clears throat> and um, he realized. Uh, well, there, and then there was a hack that had happened, and this FBI visited him to right. find out, you know, he had done an interview on the well that included those guys and a few other people. And I don't know, somehow the FBI decided Barlow was somebody they should talk to. <clears throat> and he realized when he was talking to this guy from the FBI that, that they didn't have a clue about the technology, and right. there was no way that they could even evaluate whether something was a... a, a a crime or, or an innocent, you know, parlor trick. Mm -hmm. So um, that sort of set off some thinking with him. And he, Mitch Kapoor came by and talked to him. They had initially talked about this on the well. Right. And they realized that there needed to be, uh, um, or that it made sense to have an organization that would uh, focus on educating people about technology, computer technology, yes, but also network technology. Right. And um, 
And that was the, the kind of beginnings of EFF. And they formed, yeah, they formed Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF. And around the time they were having these conversations, the Secret Service broke into Steve Jackson Games here right. in Austin. And uh, uh, it was a really bad call on the part of the, social, uh, the Secret Service. And Steve is not somebody to screw around with, you know. <laughs> so he sued the Secret Service, uh -huh. and he won. Right. And it was EFF's first big case. They they had formed in part to, uh, at least one of the parts of their charter was that they were going to provide funding for lawsuits uh, of that kind, right. you know, as well as kind of educate people and maybe build a community. So um, uh, it just happened that at the time that I connected to the well, the well connected to the internet, mm -hmm. so I had an account that gave me access to the internet, uh -huh. which I, again, I didn't know a lot about then. Uh, but then I got a, a major education through, the, through EFF. I saw the conversations about EFF on the well, and uh, it piqued my interest, and I got into the conversation with those guys. And Steve Jackson had a big like picnic at his uh, place of business, Steve Jackson Games, and a bunch of geeks came out there basically, uh, and he got on a table and and rallied the troops and said, said we are going to start the first chapter of the Electronic Frontier Foundation right here in Austin. Great. He yeah. had convinced Mitch and and Barlow and yeah. those guys that that would be the thing to do. Uh huh. So we had permission to create an alpha chapter. And uh, I signed on as a member of the board of directors and started getting uh, an education uh, primarily from a guy named John Quarterman, yeah. who was an internet consultant. And, you know, uh, anything you need to know about the internet, he knew it. Yeah. And he started teaching me about the internet and how to to use it and, and teaching me also Unix and and um, um, sort of helping me develop some degree of facility with the environments I was hanging out in. Yeah. And then Mark Frauenfelder approached me, had a magazine called Boing Boing and asked me if I would be an editor at Boing Boing. Mm -hmm. So now I've gone from uh, not really having channels for publishing the kind of stuff I really wanted to write right. to having several, you know. Yeah. Uh, I met the people at Mondo 2000 and did some writing for them. Um, and and just to summarize, so so you're starting at you're starting with the well with not the well sorry the uh, the whole Earth catalog and yeah. you want to write, and then through the well through this early uh, experience with the internet you're suddenly plugged in to all these like-minded people who are giving you new opportunities to write to edit exactly. um, and yeah. to to explore. Um, the possibilities of community on through computers through network computers exactly which was yeah. a totally new thing but that's totally what got you into um, into this topic in the first place yeah and then through um, through Mark Frauenfelder and through my connection with Boing Boing I met Paco Nathan uh, who was sort of like a genius really and Paco uh, and I had a conversation where we were kind of talking about um, how hard it was. We knew a lot of people who wanted to do, they had ideas for innovative like products uh, 
are just cool products that they would sell if they had a way to sell it. Mm-hmm. So uh, we said, well, you know, I bet people could market their, their stuff through the internet. They just sell it online, hmm. you know? So we thought that was a possibility. And uh, we started a company called Fringeware, which was kind of like it sounds. We were going to put Fringeware on um, online and sell it. Is it an, one of our initial thoughts? But the first thing we did we, was we started an email list uh, with the intention of just kind of pulling people together who might become suppliers. But that actually turned into more of a, a fringe culture kind of list or or internet culture list. Mm-hmm. Like and, a who's who of, uh, on the internet. Yeah, and then the, the other days. thing was that we went to the bank and told them that we wanted to be able to accept credit cards. And they kind of asked us about where our business was located. And we said, well, we're going to sell stuff online. <laughs> and they said, no, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, they, they, said, um, they said that you can't secure a credit card transaction. And uh, th- there was no SSL then. Uh, so they didn't want us to do it. Um, we couldn't get the bank to agree to let us accept credit cards unless we had a physical store. Mm. So we found a place called New Bohemia where we could take a, a piece, like we could just lease a piece of the store right. and put our store there. So we opened a fringeware <laughs> store. But also, uh, we decided to sell via mail order. Uh-huh. So. So Paco, uh, well, Paco and I d- decided we would do a mail order catalog, and and I said, well, why don't we just do a magazine and we can put the mail order in the back? So I said, well, we can do that. We can sell our stuff. Th- we can, it can be a magazine and a catalog, or as Fraunfelder said, a magalog. Right. So you were you were thinking about you were you were your experience in those early days was really among the first right like really you talk about the frontier of the internet you we, got you were you're out there trying things and we may and have been the first out. people to try to create a business that was based online and it was also based on online community yeah which is sort of how it evolved and there was a, a magazine distributor here in town that that really liked to distribute zines called uh homing pigeon mm-hmm. and and or they may have changed their name after that. I'm not sure. But anyway, these guys distributed our magazine far and wide. So Fringeware was like we we were more popular in Norway than we were in Austin because <laughs> right. people were getting Fringeware there. Huh. Uh, the Fringeware Fringeware Review is what we called it. Um, so so I went from being like a guy who's working at a state agency to being a guy who's sort of immersed in a emerging new culture and writing about it and, you know, kind of experimenting with ideas about doing business online. And eventually I went to work for, Wired had a, an online uh, kind of service called Hotwired, mm-hmm. uh, uh, an online publication. And I went to work for them running a, what we called the Electronic Frontiers Forum mm. and did that for, I don't know, a couple of years. Was that another bulletin board system type thing, or? Well, it was yeah, it was an online forum. Okay. Actually, it was a chat. It was a weekly chat. Okay. So they had several weekly chats that they they had set up. There was like one about science fiction, which, as I recall, was being run by Jonathan Lethem, who since oh, yeah. then has become a pretty well known author. Okay, so you have this uh, 
great perspective on how how on on the evolution of the internet right yeah. you've seen it from the beginning you've seen how it's changed you've seen you know way before facebook way before everyone and their mother was online and even way before AOL and the stuff that most people uh, that were a part of that early wave of the yeah, internet kind there of was associate a, with. There with was it. a whole evolution of social network systems um, that we were all sort of tracking. And there was this system called ORCID. It was, it was named after the guy who created it. Okay. This system started and uh, I was invited to UT to speak to a conference that was actually happening in Rio de Janeiro. Okay. And this was uh, at IC Squared Institute at UT. They were gonna do a sort of uh, remote thing, you know. Like so, a live stream. Yeah, so deal. Sandy Stone and I went down, down there and some other people, and we gave talks, and I was talking about these social network systems that were popping up, and uh, at, at the end of my talk, there, there was a Q&A, and they asked me if I could recommend one and I mentioned Orchid mm -hmm. and these people are like in Rio de Janeiro right within a month Orchid was overrun with Brazilians it was really <laughs> funny yeah so that that kind of shows the power of the network effect yeah anyway so I so yeah, yeah. I, the I think the where I was going with this is um, so you have uh, thought about this for a long time you've been involved you've watched all these different uh, stages of its evolution mm -hmm. uh, been participated in it pretty pretty intimately and um, and now we're at this stage where it is these systems that started out in this kind of humble way are now influencing global politics uh, influencing the way we we think influencing kind of our, our daily lives and um facilitating propaganda yeah right and um uh can you talk a little bit about that about, about how how you've seen that it has changed and, and what parts maybe haven't changed what parts are maybe um do you think are are ultimately a, a part of the bias of of network systems of networked uh communications <clears throat> well, you know, the, for many years, the people who found their way to the internet were people who were at least fairly intelligent and civil. And um, then it started mainstreaming and all kinds of people started joining the internet. And now the internet is like television or radio or whatever, you know, it's like right. everybody has access to it and everybody... Uh, you know, I say everybody. I, I I never meet anybody who doesn't have internet access. Well, anymore. yeah, we're we're at about I think we just passed the fifty percent threshold recently. Yeah. So, people who for are, the globe, not just for the are not yeah. necessarily um, smart, civil. You know. Um, um, People who, and not necessarily honest, and not necessarily right. ethical. Uh, all kinds of people are finding their way onto the internet. Um, and you know, early on, first there was spam, and, and we were very concerned about that, because that 
that seemed like a real potential problem, and of course it has proved to be a problem. Uh, the idea that people would exploit the networks to circulate commercial messages that were not solicited and, you know, pile junk into people's inboxes and that sort of right. thing. Um, and now, you know, the, there's a, uh, another version of that, which is robocalls. And, right. Uh, so that was kind of a bad thing. You know, so now the Internet can be used to spread propaganda, to... Uh, to um, uh, divide people uh-huh. rather than bring people together. I mean, right, we right. used to think, wow, this would be a great tool for democracy. Right. People will come together and there will be this great, you know, uh, sort of um, increase in understanding and civility and people will find their way to, um, to uh, be more and more effective uh, and more and more politically active and so forth. But it didn't really occur to us that you would have something like some foreign country that wanted to undermine the system of government in the United States that they would start sowing division as you know the Russians have been doing. Right. Um, well, and I don't know. It's yeah. kind of it's it's a real downer because. Well, yeah, it had such such good beginnings as you saw. It's kind of it tragic, was, yeah. but. I'm, I still tend to be somewhat optimistic because I think that the problem that we have is a problem that we've always had, which is that we need to help people kind of get better and smarter and rise up and so forth. And this, you know, there have been other challenges and now this is another challenge Mm -hmm. that we have to meet. Um, And it's really interesting, you know, if you look at... um, I mean, there are people who talk about this. If you look at kind of what's happening in the world and statistics and so forth, you really see that things are getting better, you know? People are less violent. There's, uh, um, uh, there's less poverty. There's less hunger in the world. So things are really getting better, but it doesn't seem like it, you know? And part of it is because we're... It, it, we're living in uh, media ecosystems that feed us really, really dark news. You right. Know? Uh, some of it real and some of it not, and that it tends to be divisive and so forth. So, well, let's let's go into that the the ecosystem uh, yeah. bit a bit. And I, I know before uh, before we started recording, we we uh, you, you wanted me to. Um, uh, specifically referred to a paper that was put out by the Institute for the Future uh, called The Biology of Disinformation. And it, it goes into exactly that, uh, that ecosystem. And um, uh, do, do you want to start well, off talking about... Uh, yeah, they're really know. talking about uh, viral memes. Um, so... Um, we learned early on, in, like Richard Dawkins, who's a geneticist uh, and a scientist, uh, started talking about memes as being like, kind of like packets of ideas or, you know, ideas that would spread. Right. Um, and and we saw this on the internet. Doug Rushkoff was one of the first people to 
talk in terms of like media virus, the idea right. that things can be viral, that they can replicate in the way viruses replicate within the media ecosystem, the information environment. Um, right, and Doug, Douglas Rushkoff is a media theorist and uh, has a podcast that I've mentioned on the show before I like called Team Human, which you've been on as well. Yeah. And he's, and he's one of the authors of, yeah. that, of, that, uh, of that report. And, um, and so, so he, was, he was noting the, he was one of the first to kind of notice that there was, um, that the metaphor of, of virality yeah. worked very well for how uh, digital media, networked digital media in particular, uh, functioned um, to, between people in, in, in the realm of ideas. We, uh, some of his thinking has been proved in very hard ways recently. I mean, um, you see things that are not just incorrect, not just uh, lies, but they're sort of blatant and obvious lies, yet mm -hmm. they're spreading and people are, um, people are, are acting at least as though they believe them. Uh, which, you know, I mean, one of the things that causes you to wonder about is this whole idea of belief. What is it? How can people believe something that is obviously incorrect and untrue? Right, yeah. You know, it's, it, it happens at an emotional level. And, yeah. and the kinds of, like, there are people who have become very skillful at finding memes and learning how to circulate them that really hit people at a very emotional level and not at an intellectual level at all. Almost but at an instinctual just, level. Right? Yeah, you could just go right to the lizard brain and mm -hmm. kind of bypass whatever filters people might have. And some people don't have very well-developed filters, so those are people right. who are even, it's even easier to bring them into um, this kind of, it's kind of theater, really. I mean, mm -hmm. um, Donald Trump has been pretty masterful at uh, exploiting this kind of like viral, viral uh, mimetic um, uh, propaganda and, um, and yeah. then holding rallies where he sort of reinforces uh, the concepts that are being, you know, distributed. I don't think, so people in one of those rallies. Right probably don't really think that anybody's ever going to lock Hillary Clinton up mm -hmm. or even that she should be locked up. Uh -huh. But they're ready to yell, lock her up, lock uh -huh. her up. It's theater. So yeah, okay. It's scary that, and dangerous theater. Has, yeah, so there's actually, uh, I was, I came across this the other day, the, um, there's this concept called uh, uh, kayfabe, which is how um, the theatrics of professional wrestling uh, wrestling works right so it's um it, you know it's heroes and villains it's playing to kind of like rough stereotypes it's playing to a lot of those instinctual urges uh, you know after all it is a, a fairly violent proto sport yeah. um and um but the it's all the whole idea is that even away from the the ring the 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 wrestlers keep up the facade they keep right. playing they're they're totally immersed in the role and 
you know, they're just never supposed to break. Um, and when they do break it, you know, people notice and, and they're like, okay, you're kind of ruining the story a little bit, right? Kind of spoiling it a little bit. But the idea is that it, it kind of feels so real that um, uh, you kind of, the, the truth doesn't really matter behind it because you're, you're so invested in the, the narrative that's, that has uh, emerged, right? Yeah, that makes me think about Andy Kaufman. No, exactly. Who played in a big way with, with the wrestling uh, kind of concept of performance. And, right. And decided to become a wrestler and was, you know, wrestling with a professional wrestler. And, and he was uh, wrestling women, right? Like as, yeah. a, as a comedic stunt uh, or, or even, you know, even smaller things. But it would wasn't do. just comedy, you know. Right. He was sort of jacking around with that whole system of belief that, right. you know, I mean, people who watch wrestling, they sort of get into, uh, they know that there's not really good guys and bad guys there, right. but, but they adopt a belief. Right. And, uh, and it feels comfortable to them, you know, and it's like, I mean, it's just like in sports in general, you have this thing where people support one over the other. Uh, you know, you, your football team, right. uh, you'll cheer them on. Um, and there's, there's an element of uh, real excitement there that, I mean, you, know, you don't really want, um, you don't want a fight. But what we've done is we've structured a kind of um, uh, civil uh, rule-based fight that people can have every week. Mm -hmm. you know, football teams go out play fight other football teams. Right. And it draws out this feeling that people have, you know, that uh, is a very sort of gut level response. Yeah, it's, kind it's of tribal. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, tribal. Yeah, exactly. And it's our tribe versus their tribe. Right. And you know, uh, some politicians right now, Trump's a really good example, are are uh, attempting to leverage that sort of thing. Right. And he's been pretty good at it, though. Um, the fact that he can fill a stadium uh, with a bunch of people who uh, will get excited in that way and will buy into the performance doesn't... I don't think that necessarily means that he's in a kind of sustainable... Um, uh, situation, yeah. Situation, yeah. Right. I mean, uh, sooner or later, people kind of get tired of that stuff. And uh -huh. I think this whole thing is going to... Uh, the, the, the level of energy that is there right now isn't always going to be there. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be... You know, that he's going to suddenly go away and we're going to be better off or some, something like that. Um, I think... Um, I actually think, and, and I'm not the only one, that, that the performance aspect of his presidency uh, is also a, a diversion from real policy, you know, that's right. <clears throat> being developed and real actions that are being taken that uh, would probably be disturbing to people if they weren't so focused on... Um, you know, whether so today he said that he was he was going to write an executive order that would overrule uh, a, a con constitutional amendment. Right. He can't really <laughs> do that, but he can 
say it. Right, but it plays into theatrics. And you get people jacked it. up about it. Yeah. Uh, just constantly keeping people um, um, excited right. and upset. I mean, some people are upset about it. Other people are saying, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Right. Um, and, you know, kind of back to where we were originally uh, talking. Yeah. Uh, the Internet plays a big role in this. Right. And, and it's not a role. I mean, 10 years ago, I would not have predicted that the Internet would be used as it's used today. Um, I don't know who would. I mean, it's, it, it definitely seemed to take us all kind of by, by a surprise. Yeah, but we sh in a way, we should have seen it coming. Um, I think maybe like KGB guys saw it, you know, mm -hmm. because that's sort of like, it's just another way for them to kind of do their thing. Interesting. You know? But before we get too deep into that, I do want to talk a little bit more about the uh, the ecosystem, uh, which was covered in that um, in that uh, paper, and it's talking about a number of different tools that um, anyone who any players in this propaganda machine will have at their disposal uh, to uh, essentially hack your perception of what is happening. So, for instance, um, you know botnets. Right, so you can get a, a, a group of, of robots to create, uh, not, not real robots, but like, you know, automated systems to um, capture Twitter, uh, create other creator capture uh, uh, Twitter accounts. Yeah, create and then the illusion of Create the mass. illusion of mass, right. Yeah. And then uh, shift the, you know, algorithms in their favor and um, kind of create some sort of critical mass at some point. Um, there's also, um, you know, there's, there's also things on the horizon like, like deep fakes, right, that we're kind of getting concerned about. And um, there's, there's, uh, uh, there's the algorithm issue itself, right? The fact that we have uh, the Facebook algorithm, the Twitter algorithm, um, you know, any other social, uh, Google has its own algorithms, right, that it's using to decide what kind of ads you're going to see and so on and um, the fact that these are kind of a black box right like nobody is able to really look at what is in the algorithm who doesn't work for those companies and even if they do look at it they're not allowed to talk about it uh, and yet they are fueling what people see online and they are creating um, their, these illusions of uh, social proof uh, to to alter how people see things. And what I mean by social proof is, uh, well, all my friends think this, right? So yeah. I, I... All of my it, friends it, who happen to be bots. <laughs> right, exactly, right? So like all my friends or like all the people out in society uh, seem to be agreeing with this, so maybe it's okay for me to say that. And then it shifts your perception kind of, you know, left or right in terms of uh, your political view. Yeah, I'm not... But I'm not sure how sustainable that is, and I, and I, I tend to think that most people are are going to think their way through this. But you know, if you if you jump in the ocean, you better know how to swim, right? Right. Especially if there's a strong current. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in our media ecosystems, the currents have been getting stronger and stronger, and and 
there's people there who really didn't know how to swim. They didn't know what they were into. Mm -hmm. And I think the best thing that we can do right now is to try to make people more aware. And um, so, what what does that look like? What what um, I don't know, there, man. Are, we've always we've been talking about this for for years now, really. Uh, uh, Howard Rango uses the term crap detectors. He says people <laughs> have to cultivate their crap detectors. Well, no, that's that's a great. But, uh, it, but it's really it, yeah. about media literacy, you know, uh, to really understand what you're seeing when you're staring in your at your screen when you're surfing around Facebook or whatever. To you know, um, and you know, if some people, if they saw one of those, um, so those like psyops people who presumably the Russians, whatever, that were pumping out these weird propaganda pieces, uh -huh. you know, these, it was, you know, like doctored images, right? Yeah, you know, with slogans on that sort of thing. Uh, and and You're talking completely about the, the made troll up farms? weird stories. Yeah, troll farms. Yeah, um, that were trolling. Yeah, right. So, um, create like creating memes or creating fake uh, Facebook accounts that um, really tried to mimic the kinds of tone, the, the kind of tone that you would expect from exactly. people on the left or extreme left or right. And you know, a lot of people, if they if they saw one of those things. I like to think most people would look at one of those things and say that's ridiculous, mm -hmm. you know, and wouldn't really buy it. Now they might share it, and they might even kind of pretend they like it. It's sort of like, so I had a cousin who uh, people talk about their crazy uncles and cousins and so forth, who right? Are sending propaganda around, um, and this has been going on for quite a while on email. So I had a cousin who was uh, a pretty avowed like. Republican guy, and he would send me some pretty absurd things sometimes, and I would always, you know, I would tell him, I'd say, you know, that's ridiculous, and he'd say, yeah, I know. He said, we're just, you know, this is, I mean. We're just he, joking, just he, having fun. Well, not joking, but, you know, it was sort of like, it was, it was a way to, um, I don't know. Part of it was there was a kind of rapport that they had around these concepts, that, right. and it might be absurd, an absurd expression, but at the same time, it sort of spoke to their system of beliefs, you know, right. political beliefs. And it was that they, kind of a comfortable uh, worldview? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's an element of that in what we're seeing that, that, you know, somebody sees some crazy thing about, like, what was it that Hillary Clinton was running a, a child, right? The Pizzagate, the pizza, Pizzagate, thing. right? Yeah, that the, the accusation that Hillary Clinton and John Podesta were run, secretly running some sort of child pornography ring out of the basement of a pizza parlor in Washington D.C. So one guy shows up at the pizza parlor with right. a gun, right? Because uh, they can't be, tell the difference. There's going to be people like that, but right. most people, even people who were sharing that thing, they weren't they weren't believing it. It was just crap, you know. It was just, uh -huh. and they're just sort of like, uh, what they're really saying is, I don't like Hillary Clinton. I don't like what she represents, you know. Um, and the extremity of it is 
you know, in a way a joke and in a way a real expression of their... But it, but it really does play on their emotions, right? It like, does play on their... Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe like intellectually they don't believe it, right? Like if you ask them to be rational about it, they're going to, okay, yeah, it's like, it is what it is. In the same way that like, you know, a, an intelligent person might still love to read the tabloids, right? And, and, and get into these crazy stories and these crazy uh, what ifs and, and so on. And, and they know that it's, they know that it's fake, but they, but they just love getting sucked into it because it's like an, emo, you know, it's an emotional release or it's a, a sort of, you know, a way to fantasize about uh, how they wish the world was or something like that. But it seems that there is a, um, and maybe it has more to do with the fact that like we're all under, you know, different kinds of duress with the, with the state of the world, but maybe um, there is some... Uh, uh, so, some some point where it's it's so comforting that they don't um, that it's uh, it's hard to let go of right like you, you want you it almost kind of starts to take over because you, you kind of need to think that way and it seems to simplify what is it ultimately like way too complicated world right so um, do you see where I'm going with this? Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I know. I mean, so I kind of think that all of this stuff becomes, to an extent, a distraction. I mean, we should be talking about things like, so we, we, we're seeing now that there really are some white supremacists and fascists and so forth that, that are now feeling a little safer to speak up and to make themselves known. Yeah. And uh, and some of them are pretty pretty bad guys, you know, just based on what they're saying. Right. Um, a lot of us would agree they're pretty bad guys. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. they have they have their uh, their tribe, you know, that they. Yeah. With. Well, I mean, we just had the the shooting this past Saturday. Um, yeah. So at the Pittsburgh synagogue. Yeah. That's something real, and I don't think that that was caused by the internet, you know. I think that. Um, Do you think it was encouraged by it? Do you think it was like that it played a factor in in somebody being feeling that comfortable? I mean, because this person too, right? Like, I think they're finding out that he had like this. He was very much into the George Soros conspiracy thing. Yeah, you can get into an echo chamber that'll really spin you up, and I guess. Uh, but it's not really the internet that's causing that. It's like. There's something really present within people, right? That we thought we had fixed and we hadn't, you mm -hmm. know, we, at least not to the extent that we thought we had. Mm -hmm. uh, and suddenly, it's feeling okay for some people to be racist again. They mm -hmm. kept quiet about it before, but they were really feeling that stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could make one argument, which is, I, you know, maybe it's good that we're getting more transparency about this that we're finding out what people really think and feel but we really need to we got to figure out how to address it and i don't think you know i don't think like regulating facebook is going to fix this problem yeah the fact that people have uh strong racist feelings um I mean, I think that we fooled ourselves into thinking all that stuff had gone away because people got quiet about it because it wasn't cool to talk about it. Right. 
but now they're talking about it and it's like how do we address that what what conversation yeah. do you have can you change the mind of somebody who has a deep-seated fear of the other you know and 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 can't seem to um, can't seem to make peace with that right so so I can just kind of tell you about what I'm doing yeah um, one thing I'm doing to try to make the world a better place is I I, I turn my company into a co-op yeah um, and which means that the people that I work with are co-owners with me and we have a fair and equitable workplace uh, where everybody has a say and um, I believe that if you're living in a, a culture that you want to move toward a more democratic way of doing things, that the way you do it is in your everyday life and doing something like that. Um, so basically, um, instead of trying to figure out how to fix other people, we work on making the best kind of world that we can where we actually can take action, you know? Mm -hmm. And where these things on the internet are concerned, um, the best thing I know to do about it that I can do personally is that when I see weird shit go by, I call it out, you know, and unemotionally. Mm -hmm. It's not like I troll back, you know, it's not like I give somebody shit about it. I just point out, hey, that's not, that's not true. Here's why it's not true. Uh -huh. um, we need to avoid um, escalating or getting into, you know, uh, a contest with people who are spreading this weird shit around. Mm -hmm. uh, the best thing that we can do is to try to talk them down. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily going to work. I mean, it's like Thanksgiving's coming up and you know what's going to happen. Right. There's going to be some really bad scenes at the dinner tables, right? Sure, yeah. But... It'd be great if, I mean, if I went into something like that, if I was going to sit down with my family at Thanksgiving and politics came up, uh, I would try to listen and I would try to be civil about it. I would be civil about it. Yeah. I mean, it's the best thing that you can do. And don't fight and don't argue, but just try to draw things out and, and maybe show, you know, demonstrate mm -hmm. where you think they're wrong right exactly what you think they're wrong about right so so it's also being aware though of, of when you're getting triggered right when you're getting emotional to find ways to exactly back off it so that you de-escalate yeah don't let them push your buttons and, and, yeah um and i think you know i think that people do tend to think about trying to fix this thing out there but the best you can do is fix it right here yeah, you know, and that—that's my with yourself focus. with the people around you, with your loved ones. Yeah. Also, I keep saying I'm not going to look at Facebook anymore, but uh -huh. I'm on there every day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because everybody I know is there, you know. So yeah. I get to hang out with my friends every day, and you're not going to get people to quit doing that. And but maybe there's a way you can you can be more civil there, and you can you can make the effort to. You know, watch how you're communicating and... Yeah, don't uh, blame Mark Zuckerberg if it's not working. Yeah. You know, 
be smarter than the equipment. I mean, I know people at Facebook. I know how serious they are about the their role, you know, in um, in the sort of bad scene that has evolved, and how they're trying to figure out how to how to do what they can, and it is a hard problem. Yeah. It's a hard problem for them, but it's it's something that we can all help with. You know, we can all. Um, Commit to, I mean, if you if you're fairly sane and rational, and you know, it, it can control your emotions, then that's very powerful in itself, and you mm-hmm. should just be prepared to just talk to people, yeah, and 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 you know, try to defuse the emotional content of the messaging that's going around because mm-hmm. the the it's all at a the bad stuff is at an emotional level. Right. And there is bad stuff going on, and there's stuff we should do about that too. But yeah. I'm really thinking more about like what an ordinary person can do in their day-to-day life. I mean, obviously you right. should vote. Some people should run for office, whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of things people should do. But for most people, that's not what they're going to do. Right. But they're in their day-to-day life, they're going to have opportunities where they can just talk to somebody and talk them down. And I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, too, like, you got to ask yourself whether or not the way that you're consuming media is serving you, right? Like, is it is it making things better? Is it improving the... Is it informing you in ways that actually um, uh, help you connect to other people better, uh, yeah. make better decisions? If it's not, then, you know, you got to hold that technology accountable and find some other way. So like if, if, if communicating with your friends, right, or communicating with and reaching out to other people is not effective on the internet, if it's not having a positive result, then uh, perhaps you need to go back to, you know, analog and just like talk to people and, and, and use your, your, or develop your, your basic kind of face-to-face skills well, I mean, a, I, I hear this a lot, and, and I think that there are, I mean, we always understood in the groups I was involved with that it was better to be hanging out with people and talking face-to-face, but the Internet really allowed us to connect, like we could stay connected when we couldn't be face-to-face, and we could connect with people who, uh, there's no way we could be face-to-face with. I mean. There's this great guy named Pete Feltham that lives in England, and I've never seen him. Uh-huh. You know, we've never had face-to-face contact, but I consider him a friend. And uh, I think I met him through uh, the well or Howard Rheingold initially. Uh, really great guy, you know. Um, uh, I've known people in all sorts of countries around the world that there's just not an opportunity for me to get face-to-face with them, but mm-hmm. I can stay connected with them, yeah. and they're my friends. So that's a positive thing, but really, the real relationships I have that are the strongest relationships are the face-to-face relationships I have where I really can meet people and hang out with people. Yeah. And, that, and, you know, nobody should consider the Internet a substitute for that, and I think most people don't. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I think that's a good place to to wrap it up. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much, John, for agreeing to be on the show. Okay. Really appreciate your time. Well, thank um, you. This has been fun. Yeah. I hope hope you'll, you'll come again sometime. Okay. Sure. All right. Thanks, John.
Thanks for joining us on this trip through the shadow of the valley. If you'd like to learn more about John or his work, please visit Plutopia.io or weblogsky.com. That's W-E-B-L-O-G-S-K-Y.com. Our theme music was generously provided by Bly, spelled B-I-E-L-E. You can find her on SoundCloud and at https colon slash slash s-a-r-a-h-b-l-y dot com. Additional music was provided by Michael Garfield, host of the Future Fossils podcast. You can also find him on Patreon and Bandcamp. That'll do it for this episode. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Please also share it with any friends or family you may think will enjoy these interviews. I've been your host, Tal Leeds, saying keep going.